0: Hey, good evening, everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 3. And uh, as we have said numerous times, uh, James is calling his readers to grow in their walk with the Lord. And uh, he is doing this by talking about the characteristics of those who are mature in the faith. You know, everyone thinks they're mature in the faith. So you stand next to somebody who's really mature in the faith. You know, I mean, I can think I'm six feet tall. But when I stand next to somebody who's really six feet tall, I see that I don't measure up. And that's what James is doing. He's saying, look, here's what a mature Christian looks like. How you doing? Now, you know, a lot of his readers weren't doing so good. In fact, as we've said before, he's convinced that not all of them are actually even saved. But he's wanting to get across this idea that, look, here's the goal be like jesus okay the goal is that we grow in our walk with the lord now so he, he lays out or starts talking about these characteristics of those who are mature in the faith in the first three chapters he has presented us with some of the characteristics of a mature christian in chapter one he talked about how mature christians actually rejoice in tribulation because they know it, it's making them more like christ they're, they're rejoicing in their trials because trials uh, have a way of growing them but they're also always on the lookout ag- against uh, temptation because the devil will try to counteract whatever growth we have in the spirit with temptation to get us to fall and so on so mature christians embrace trials but they also are on guard against temptation chapter one uh, chapter two dealt pretty much with uh, a mature christian uh, james's demonstrates uh, a heart of love and concern for those who are disadvantaged you know one of the things that really uh, stands out among those who are Christians, and it's interesting how that before a person gets saved, they can be pretty selfish. But once they get saved, of course, God moves inside. They receive the nature of God. And, of course, God is all about loving loving people, but especially he's got a soft spot in his heart for the poor, disadvantaged, orphans, widows, and so on. And uh, James is saying, look, you can't be mature and be selfish. Maturity demonstrates itself in that, you know, what we look out for those who are the most uh, vulnerable, the most uh, disadvantaged, the most helpless. And so at the end of chapter 2, he talks about, or actually chapter 1 leading into chapter 2, he talks about the orphans and widows and visiting them and and, uh, and taking care of them and so on. Uh, Then in chapter 3, the first 12 verses, he says a mature Christian also is one who has power over their tongue. And we talked about that last week. And now in chapter 3, starting with verse 13, he shares another important characteristic of a mature Christian. A mature Christian walks in wisdom. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Now, before we go on, let me say one more time that wisdom is not the same as intelligence. We talked about this in chapter 1. But intelligence is the accumulation of information, whereas wisdom is the proper application of information. A person can have a lot of information in their brain and still be a fool if they don't apply it properly, like a doctor who smokes or a personal trainer who eats junk food all the time. All right? The same is true to Christians. There's a lot of Christians who have head knowledge. But guys, it's not how much you know, it's how much you live. And James says that in chapter 1, verse 22, don't just be hearers of the word, deceiving yourselves, thinking, well, I know the word, I hear it, I I got it stored in my brain, great. Be doers of the word, he said. That's really what the goal is. Maturity is not how much you know, it's how much you live, all right? So we know that uh, James is basically now saying in chapter uh, 3, look, a wise person is going to be revealed by how he or she lives their lives. According to what they know, even as Jesus said in Matthew 11:19, 19, he said, wisdom is vindicated, or in other words, proven to be true by her deeds. Wisdom is proven to be true by her deeds. Now, of course, if there is wisdom that is true, well, it must mean that there is also wisdom that is false. And that's what he wants to get into now. Verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, James tells us that this world contains two different kinds of wisdom. These two schools of wisdom descend from two entirely different information streams. Remember, wisdom is the application of information. And these streams flow from two primary sources or fountainheads, God and Satan. James says that the wisdom that comes from God, he calls it the wisdom that is from above, is both First of all, true, verse 14, and then pure, verse 17. Guys, again, if wisdom comes from information, then godly wisdom is built on God's Word, which is divine information, right? The Bible is God's divine information. It's His Word. And so the wisdom that comes from above is obviously wisdom built on divine information. You can turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 19, starting with verse 7, where the psalmist said, The law of the Lord is perfect. Now, all of these are different ways of saying the word of God. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, and so on. All different ways of saying the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making what? Wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. That's what James said, okay? The word of God is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Listen, when a Christian reads, studies, and listen, applies the scriptures into their life, they will become wise. Remember what Jesus said? You have to turn to this one. Matthew 7, 24. Jesus said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine Whoever hears my word and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So, and of course, he goes on to say, and the fool hears the word and does not do it. And that's like building your house on the sand, right? The idea is that we have to know the word of God, okay, if we're going to live it, but you can know it and not live it, and that's a fool. I mean, wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. It's foolish for somebody to come and hear the Word of God taught, hide it in their heads and hearts, and then don't do anything about it. Now, I know that no true evangelical believer would do that. But there are a lot of people who come to church and call themselves Christians who come week after week and hear the Word of God, and they go out those doors, and they don't apply any of it. I don't know if they never intended to apply any of it or... If they simply think that just hearing it's good enough, as James said, they deceive themselves. They're just hearers of the word, not doers. But this wisdom, where we hear God's word and apply it, is the kind of wisdom that Solomon admonished us to get in the book of Proverbs. Remember he said, you know, with all your getting, get knowledge, get, get wisdom. Uh, again, the wisdom that uh, he's talking about is the, is the wisdom that comes from taking God's word, applying it into our lives, which then allows us to listen. Walk in wisdom, Colossians 4, 5. That's the idea. Living out that wisdom. That's what we, the whole goal of the Christian life is, living out the Word of God. It says of Jesus that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, right? Well, that really is the goal for all of our lives as a Christian, that the Word of God becomes flesh in our lives. In other words, that the life we live is consistent with the Word we believe. And that's the idea, that the Word would become flesh in my life, that my life would flesh it out in the sense that I would live it that I would be a living epistle, that people can, as they look at my life, as Paul said, I don't have to, you know, I don't need letters from, in those days they would get letters from important uh, teachers and philosophers. This would add weight if he came to a church and said, well, look, I've got letters signed by so-and-so. He's endorsing my ministry. Oh, a letter by so-and-so. Good, come on. You know, Paul said, I don't need letters. You're my living epistles read and known by all men. Your changed lives are a testimony to the power of the ministry that God has called me to and the Word of God, which has transformed you, and so on. So, this is the knowledge stream or the information stream that comes from God. It's His Word. And, of course, as you apply it, then you are walking in wisdom. However, there's another body of information that Satan has introduced into this world it's His lies. It's His lies. Satan's lies are humanistic at their core. In other words, they place man and man's desire at the center of his existence. Uh, This information, these lies, uh, if believed and embraced, will lead to another kind of wisdom. What Paul called in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 20, the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world, as James puts it in verse 15, is earthly, sensual, and demonic. You know why? because it comes from the god of this world who has filled this world with his lies this world is controlled by the devil of course god almighty is over all things but in the garden when man disobeyed god and obeyed the devil he turned control over the world to the devil jesus didn't dispute that because at one point satan tempts him remember and he takes him to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment's time. Says, "All these belong to me. I can give it, give them to whomever I will. I'll give them to you if you bow down and worship me." And Jesus didn't contest that. He he didn't challenge that. He knew that Satan had, he was the god of this world. But that's why Jesus had come, to die on the cross, to take back the world from the enemy, the usurper, to give it to the rightful king, Jesus Christ, who has bought and paid for at Calvary's cross, is coming back someday soon to take possession of what he has bought and paid for, and when he does, he will establish a kingdom on this earth that will never end, a kingdom that will be based in truth, a righteous kingdom. But as of right now, though, the god of this world, Satan, controls this world's system, and, uh, you know, he has filled this world with his lies. Of course, people don't know their lies. They think it's truth, Right? But God has opened our eyes to his truth. And even as God's wisdom leads a person to live a godly life in this world, the wisdom that comes from the devil, well, that produces ungodly living. Ungodly living. Uh, This so-called wisdom, as I just said, is man-centered. Satan's lies, I should say, is man-centered. It's a philosophy of life that is rebellious towards the will of God, which rejects entirely the word of God and is completely humanistic in its approach to life, which means that man is God and answers to no one but himself. That's the very definition of humanism. Humanism, even the Supreme Court some years ago, had to acknowledge that humanism is a religion. Of course, the atheists didn't want that because they pride themselves on being non-religious. But they are humanists to the core. A humanist is one who basically puts himself at the center of existence. He's God or she's God. And they can do whatever they want because there is no God to answer to. Kind of like it was during the time of the judges where there was no king in Israel. Therefore, everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. We are seeing that today. In fact, Paul the Apostle said in, uh, what was it, First uh, Timothy 3? Uh, or is it Second Timothy? Second Timothy 3, one <laughs> of those. Uh, that in the last days, this... this um, man-centered God complex that people have would would reach a crescendo and just everyone would be doing whatever seemed right in their own eyes and you can read about that it's incredible what uh, is happening today which is consistent with what the Bible says would happen in the last days but um, this is a completely humanistic approach to life that's what Satan is all about he wants man to think the garden of Eden was all about deifying man Oh, you won't surely die. God knows if you eat the apple, and that day you'll become like him, like a god. I mean, that that was the lie of the devil in the garden originally. That's a lie that's been growing and spreading throughout the entire world since. It's all rooted in Hinduism. Of course, the spiritual side is Hinduism. And the New Age movement is westernized Hinduism. That, you know what, we're all God, we just forgot it. We need to be enlightened to that reality. But we are gods, we're all part of the God consciousness. This is the lie of the devil, I believe. This will be the lie. The Bible talks about, you know, the lie, definite article. I think it's uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, 2.11, and then Romans 1.25 talks about the lie. There's a lot of lies in the world, but um, Paul had his mind on one particular lie, which I believe, he said the Antichrist is going to really promote this lie. What is it? I think it's the lie in the Garden of Eden. That is the lie, that man is really God or can become a God. And uh, so much of Satan's, um, the wisdom of this world is rooted in that very lie. And and not only that, but but this demonic wisdom will, if a person embraces it, will blind them to the truth of the gospel and cause them to think that those who believe in God, the God of the Bible, and in the preaching of the cross for salvation, they're fools they're fools because when man deifies himself he sees the need for no other god or just basically claims there is no god beside himself right so when a person embraces these doctrines of demons these lies of the devil and they really start walking in them they they are blinded to the truth in fact Paul told Timothy you know they're not our enemies don't argue with people like this Uh, be patient humble, able to teach in humility, correcting those in opposition. They've been taken captive by the enemy to do his will. Now, let's pray that God will grant them repentance, that they would come to the knowledge of the truth. See, what the devil is all about, getting people involved in his lies and then using those lies to blind them to the very truth that God through Christ came to give us. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, for the message of the cross is what? foolishness to those who are perishing so anybody who, who believes the preaching of the cross is foolishness guess what the bible says they're perishing they're on their way to hell because that's a mark of an unbeliever uh, that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of god for it is written i will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent in other words there is coming a day when god is going to end this nonsense all this worldly wisdom all these intellectuals who think they, they know so much, they're so smart, they're so wise, and the rest of us who believe in God are so dumb. Someday they're going to stand before the God of the universe, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and they're going to have to give an account, and they're going to be held accountable while they put their intellect and their pride and, their, and themselves above God's word. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians 4, starting with verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan has blinded the people of this world, and that's why he's blinded them, but God is working. The Spirit of God is working in men and women's hearts to show them the truth, trying to open their understanding. He's given them enough understanding where if they want to exercise faith, they can. But many of them have just completely closed themselves off from any of God's truth because they don't want to hear it at all. Now, guys, with all this in mind, let's read again what James has to say uh, about the kind of wisdom that comes from God and is manifested in the life of a mature believer in Christ. Verse 14 of chapter 3, he said, But if you have bitter envy... And self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. Look, any person that is full of bitter envy and uh, self-seeking can boast all they want about being a strong, mature Christian, but they're just deceiving themselves and living a lie. And again, I do think that James has in mind some people that he knew in the group he was writing to, the Jewish population that uh, many of them believed they were Christians, I think that James is trying to say, some of you guys, the reason you're not mature, the reason you're not walking in the Spirit is because you're not saved. So that's always something to think about as we're reading this. But it doesn't. it's not limited to only that group. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But um, again, the idea is, look, if you're full of bitter envy and constantly self-seeking, well, you know, examine yourself. Are you really saved, is the idea. He talks about envy. Of course, envy is wanting what others have. It's kind of like coveting. all right. Coveting is desiring what somebody else has. But this Greek word adds um, a dark shade to it. Uh, this Greek word is not just wanting what, uh, where I want what you've got, but I don't even want you to have it. I want it, but I don't want you to have it anymore. I want to be blessed, but I don't want you to be blessed. That's bitter envy that some people are being blessed and I'm not. And I deserve it more than they do. I want what they have, and I don't even want them to have it, is the idea. Pretty nasty way to to think, all right? He talks about self-seeking again. It's a life preoccupied with self, also translated selfish ambitions. And guys, at very least, these are signs of carnality, uh, bitter envy, and self-seeking. And at worst, they're an evidence that a person isn't really a Christian at all. Guys, listen, again, any so-called wisdom or any so-called philosophy of life, in fact, that's what the word philosophy means. It comes from two Greek words that literally mean lover of wisdom, lover of wisdom. Any philosophy of life that places self at the center of life and lives only to please self, listen, isn't wisdom that comes from God's word, of course, but it's the wisdom of this world rooted in Satan's lies. Author William McDonald said, and I quote, The worldly wise man is characterized by bitter envy and selfish ambition in his heart. His one passion in life is to advance his own interests. He is jealous of any competitors and ruthless in dealing with them. He is proud of his wisdom that has brought success. But James says that this isn't wisdom at all. Such boasting is empty. It is a practical denial of the truth that the man who is truly wise is truly humble, end quote. Well, James 3.15, he said, This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Earthly. Having this life only in view. I mean, let's face it. The wisdom that is from above says, Look, this life is only temporary. Use it to glorify God. Use it to lay up for yourself treasures in heaven by serving the Lord. But this isn't all there is. This is really the launching pad for eternity. Uh, But the worldly person... They make this life everything. They're called earth dwellers in the book of Revelation. This is their home, all right? We all dwell on the earth in the sense we all live here, but this is not our home. We're passing through as Christians. We're pilgrims and sojourners. The wisdom that comes from the devil is a wisdom that says make this, this life is everything. So just grab for all the gusto you can. You only get one go around of this thing. So earthly. Secondly, sensual. Interesting, the Greek word translated sensual means natural. The natural man, as the Bible puts it, well, that term, the natural man, is a term that speaks of someone who has been born into the world physically, but not born again of the spirit spiritually. It's John 3, okay? Every person born of Adam is a natural man. An unbelief, they're, they're unsaved, okay? Every person born to this world has been born in Adam. And as such, they are alive physically, but they are dead spiritually, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man, again, the unbeliever, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. See, what Paul is saying is, look, God's truth is everywhere. In fact, the Holy Spirit is broadcasting constantly. He's speaking into people's lives. But you have to have the proper receiving equipment to hear and interact with that word of the Spirit. In this room, filling this room right now, there are radio waves, frequencies, from all over the radio bandwidth, am and fm i mean you've got symphonies you've got sporting events you've got talk radio you got all these things going on right now in in this room but unless you have a tuner that's able to tune into the bandwidth you're not gonna be able to interact with that you're not gonna be able to receive it so paul is saying the natural man or woman the unsaved person they, don't, they can't interact with God's word, really. They, they can listen to it, and I'm not saying they can't grasp any of it. They can grasp some of it, but they can't really interact with it. They can't apply it. They're dead in trespasses and sins. It's interesting, guys, that the word sensual in James chapter 3, verse 15, and natural in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, their Greek word is psychikos, psychikos. Uh, it's a word we get the word psychology from, comes from that word. Uh, Psyche is a Greek word for soul. Lagos, a study of psychology, is a study of the soul. problem is the soul is non-physical. So a psychologist, who is often an unbeliever, can't study the soul because it's non-physical. The only one who knows the soul is the one who made it, and he's the only one who is qualified to comment on it, and he does so in his word. You want a book that talks about... The human soul, read the Bible, because God made the soul. Our soul is our consciousness. But when it's used in these contexts, 1 Corinthians 2.14 and then James 3.15, it's really talking about the soulish man, the soulish person, a person who lives to satisfy their body's appetite, like an animal. An animal is a two-dimensional creature. Uh, It has a body and a consciousness. And as such, an animal lives to satisfy its body appetites. Uh, eat, drink, you know, procreate. It's really all an animal instinctively. That's how they live. They're not a three-dimensional being like a born-again Christian who now adds the spirit to the body and soul, and we become a complete trinity as God made us to be, and it's the spirit that connects with God uh, spirit to spirit for the purpose of communion. That only happens when a person is born of the spirit. They have a spirit now. But the unsaved person, the natural person, they have a soul, they're alive, but their soul lives pretty much to satisfy the body appetites, just like an animal. So food, drink, sex, that kind of thing. Peter even said that unbelievers, many of them, are like brute beasts who live in such a way that they ought to be caught and destroyed because of the evil they they do. But he talks about earthly, sensual, the wisdom from from this world is earthly, sensual, then demonic. Of course, it's demonically inspired, living rooted in Satan's lies. Interesting that these uh, demonic, this demonic information is also what the Bible calls it, doctrines of demons. In First Timothy chapter four verse one, Paul said, "The Spirit says this very clearly: that in the last days, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons." So, what is Paul telling us? He is saying that. Satan's lies have always been in the world, but the church has been the place where truth is proclaimed. But in the last days, Satan's lies would begin to make inroads into the church like never before, and these doctrines of demons would take hold. Of course, they wouldn't be passed off to the the church's doctrines of demons. They would be Christianized and passed off as, you know, uh, spiritual principles that maybe were hidden that we've just really discovered for these last days. Uh, new ways to pray and have fellowship or communion with God, empty your mind of all thought by saying a a mantra. Of course, a Christian mantra is safe, they say. The Hindu has been practicing and the occult has been practicing mantras for centuries. That's bad. But if you say Abba or Jesus or some other spiritual phrase, and you work yourself into an altered state of consciousness where you empty your mind of all thought, the silence, you can now come into the presence of God in a way you've never experienced before. This is being passed off all over the church. It's a doctrine of demons. As people are opening themselves up using demonic doctrines that have been Christianized, oh yeah, but God protects me because I'm I'm innocent. I want to use it to get close to God. Look, you have God's word. I tell Christians God has given you his truth. If you're too lazy to study it and understand what God is saying and you get off into the doctrines of demons, you're not going to be protected. God said to his people, Israel, back in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, look, stop going to these mediums and these wizards who are giving you this secret information that that, uh, mutter and whisper. He says, get back to my word. Get back to my word. That's where you'll find me. That's where you'll find my truth. And that's how you'll draw close to me. We are living in dark, demonic days. The church is not exempt. And many Christians are falling because they are not really placing all the emphasis in their churches on God's word. James 3.16, For where envy and self-seeking exist, there's what? Confusion in every evil thing. I don't have to tell you guys, you know this. The scriptures are absolutely clear that God is not the author of confusion. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 33. The confusion that we see in the world today guys is a confusion that has been brought about by the work of the devil. Now here's the interesting thing. as James is talking about this, how that you know this wisdom of the world is rooted in selfishness and bitter envy and self-seeking and, and leads to confusion and so on, remember what he had just talked about a few verses earlier. What did he talk about a few verses earlier? The tongue, right? A lot of the confusion, the chaos, the evil in the world today has been perpetrated by Satan using the tongue to preach his lies and so on to the people of this world. So we see it being spread, his lies and so on. People preaching strange doctrines and ideologies, and we see uh, even uh, things like communism and Islam and uh, various other uh, isms and things and religious Teachings that are all of the devil, and they are leading people into lives of chaos and confusion and many evil things. It's an evil thing to strap a bomb belt to yourself and walk into a crowded marketplace with women and children and blow yourself up because you think you're going to go instantly into paradise and get your 70 virgins. That is a completely evil thing. Satan's lies have produced every evil thing we see going on in the world today in contrast to the word of God, which produces beautiful things. Verse 17, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Let me just define these quickly so you have a working knowledge. And uh, some of these I'll actually quote Greek scholars who give us a little better understanding, but pure. And I think of the Beatitudes with some of these. You know, uh, blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus said. What does that mean? Well, he was speaking of a purity that comes when a person receives Christ and receives a new heart. They're pure in heart now, all right? And uh, the word means, you know, pure in heart and attitudes and in motives. Then it's peaceable, the wisdom that comes from God. Peaceable, which uh, means promoting peace and not perpetuating conflict. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. I mean, that's an attribute of God. God is the God of peace. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the Prince of Peace. God is a God who desires peace with man. And when man rebelled and we became we were then at odds with God, we had uh, became the enemy of God, God sent his son to go to the cross to, again, cleanse man, to satisfy his righteousness, God's righteousness. Sin was paid for, and now God is offering us, uh, mankind, I should say, the offer of peace come to me, be my child, have fellowship with me, and so on. All right? So it's peaceable, not always promoting conflict. Um, it's gentle. And this Greek word is, has no real English equivalent. You have to define it by several words. Uh, it like carries the idea of equitable, fair, moderate, forbearing, courteous, considerate. One author translated, uh, said this. He said, this kind of man or woman knows how to forgive when strict justice gives him a perfect right to condemn. As someone called it, sweet reasonableness and the ability to extend to others the kindly consideration we, we would wish to receive ourselves. He says that the wisdom of God is also then willing to yield, a word that means not stubborn nor obstinate. It's the opposite of stiff and unbending, all right? You ever notice anybody that was absolutely stiff, unbending, unwavering, you know, there was their way or the highway? never could compromise with them, never could sit down and reach them. You know, that's not the kind of wisdom that comes from God. He talks about the wisdom of God being full of mercy. Um, It does not judge others strictly on the basis of the law, but will extend a generous hand full of mercy. Mercy means not getting what you deserve. When somebody shows you mercy, we'll say in a legal matter, they have every right to take you to court and they will win because you're guilty. Of whatever it was but they extend you mercy they withhold uh, the penalty that you deserve they withhold that out of mercy also it's full of good fruits ideas good works okay uh, primarily I think of the fruit of the Spirit the wisdom of God is full of God's character which is the fruit of the Spirit the fruit of the Spirit of course listed in Galatians 5 22 and 3 uh, is um, love joy peace long-suffering kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control paul says against such there is no law you can't pass laws to say that you're gonna, you have to do this you have to have peace you have to have love it's a law we passed it okay you, you can't do this it has to come from within and it does when the holy spirit moves inside two more he says god's wisdom is, is without partiality well we think we know what that means but the greek word has a different shade it's a word that means without judging a person's harder motives the wisdom of god the way a mature christian lives they don't judge others hearts or motives and then finally it's without hypocrisy hypocrisy of course was um, putting on a mask hippocrates an actor on stage uh, wearing a mask giving a performance uh, god's wisdom is is transparent People don't play a part. They don't wear a mask. They're, they're honest. They're upright. They're out in front. You know, they're not trying to deceive anybody. Well, James 3, verse 18. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A person who walks in God's wisdom is mature in the faith. And the evidence will be the fruits of the Holy Spirit that will be produced in their life. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Mature Christians are filled with the Spirit and the evidence is the fruit of God is being produced in and through their lives. Romans 6, verse 22, but now having been set free from sin, so you're saved, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. So a transformation takes place once a person gets saved. And holiness is one of the big evidences that a person is now child of God. Philippians 1 verse 11, I'll just read this one to you, where Paul said, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. These fruits cannot come unless Jesus Christ lives in your heart because they are the character of God, the nature of God. And that only happens when we accept Christ and the Spirit of God moves in. Now listen, guys, in contrast to the kind of peace that results When Christians walk in the spirit, which is maturity, James continues this kind of line of thought in chapter 4 by telling us that when Christians are carnal or immature, uh, it produces strife, conflict, and listen, internal and external struggles. So chapter 4, verse 1, James says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Or as the NIV translates it, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Look, when it comes to the constant fighting within a church, and some churches have more of this than others. We're pretty blessed. Uh, We have a lot of peace, a lot of harmony in this church. And I thank God for that. But there's a lot of churches that don't. And um, I really think that the more conflict, the more fighting, the more discord in a church... Indicates at very least a lot of carnality, but probably indicates that the more you have, the higher percentage of unbelievers you have in those churches. See, we're blessed. We're an independent Bible church. None of you were born into this church. Well, we're getting old old enough now where some were, okay, physically. But you have churches that, you know, have been around for generations, And and three or four generations of families have gone to this church. I mean, when the children were born, it was just assumed they would be a part of the church. They're baptized into the church, but they have never accepted Christ. So typically, in these kinds of churches, you have a lot of people who have made that church their home for many years, but don't, don't even know the Lord. I have a pastor friend. In fact, he's taught here before. God opened the door in Round Lake for him to take over a church that's been around for, I don't know, 100 years, I think. He went there and started teaching. Well, I can't tell you. I don't have the time to tell you how much turmoil. The devil doesn't like it. After years and years of of sowing lukewarm and lies and everything else, when somebody comes in and starts teaching the Word, he doesn't like that. So this pastor got all kinds of heat. But eventually God rooted out all the troublemakers who were not saved. But he starts teaching a Bible study, as we do in Calvary Chapel, verse by verse. There's a woman who was 90 years old at this church. She had been going there all her life. After about a month or so of this pastor teaching the word of God, she comes up to this pastor with tears in her eyes and said, I, I never heard the yet to accept Jesus Christ to go to heaven. She, what she was saying is, I never heard the gospel in this church. And so he prayed with her to receive Christ. 90 years old. Went to that church all her life. Never heard the simple gospel. So when I say these things, you understand, this is not you know unique. It's becoming more and more a reality, common, uh, in the organized church, the Christian church, which is made up of a lot of non-Christians, of course. Um, but again, you know, when it comes to a church that has constant fighting, usually it's a few people that are always the common denominators, and. Probably it's because those folks who are always at the center of controversy probably not saved. Probably not saved. We see this in a lot of churches with leadership. Leadership. There's a lot of churches where the leaders, those people running the church, don't even know the Lord. Some of you have, are in this room that have come from churches like that. I remember a few years ago we had a, a gal in our church. She was at, young at that time. Maybe 14. And she spent the night with her friend, um, you know, at her friend's house, and it was Saturday night and then Sunday morning, and they were going to go to their church, this family's church, Sunday morning. Well, they went, and something had been brewing in the leadership, and it all came out that Sunday morning. Can you believe it? Sunday morning with visitors and people checking out the Lord, wanting to know what it means to be a Christian. What Whatever this ugly thing was, it boiled over on Sunday morning, and on that morning, as this young lady is sitting there, horrified, one of the deacons goes up to the pastor and pins him against the wall with his elbow, choking him. A big brouhaha broke out. You know, and I really wonder how many of these people were actually saved. And we can all be pretty carnal. But I would have to believe a lot of this is because you have people in authority uh, who are not genuine Christians, one pastor said this, and I quote, he said, A pastor friend of mine once told me that he had discovered that, that the root cause of his quarreling, wrangling church board was that half of the men were saved and half were not. In such a situation, conflict is inevitable. End quote. Now, let me just say this again. We must not limit this behavior to unbelievers only. I mean, there are many carnal Christians in the church that create a lot of strife, a lot of uh, conflict uh, through their pride and selfishness also. In fact, turn to 1 Corinthians 3. Paul talked about these, and we know he was talking about Christians from the language he uses. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 3, let me read it to you out of the NLT. And again, I think it's pretty clear Paul is talking to Christians now, real Christians. He said, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people, mature. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in the Christian life. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world, end quote? Look, true Christians can be pretty carnal. We understand that. And at very least, that's what James is talking about. He's talking to these people saying, look, it's time to grow up. It's time to stop being carnal, selfish, self-seeking, always on a power trip, you know, and wanting to be recognized, wanting to be the guy in the, in the spotlight and so on. He said in verse 2 of chapter 4, You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, when James talks about, you know, you murder, I don't really think he's talking literally. I'm not saying that there has never been a murder at a church, you know, ever, okay, uh, but I, I don't think he's speaking literally. I think he's speaking you know, uh, figuratively that many people have been murdered in the heart by hatred. Uh, many uh, reputations have been murdered uh, by you know, the gossip coming out of people's mouths and things. Okay, uh, When a person wants so badly what somebody else has, a position of power or prestige in the church, often they will go at that person and will begin to sow discord. They'll begin to, to, to lie about the person, murder their character and then try to take over that position. But uh, one pastor had this to say, he said, and I quote, murder translates a Greek verb, which in this context uh, could include murderous hatred, extremely destructive behavior, and even suicide. When the lusting person cannot achieve his desired goals, whether for reputation, prestige, sexual gratification, money, power, escape through drugs or alcohol, success, possessions, the affections of another person or whatever, the result is often catastrophic to others and always destructive to oneself. Even when they were struck blind by the angels in Lot's house, the men of Sodom were so obsessed with their perverted lust that ignoring their blindness, they continued groping for the door in vain, uh, in a vain attempt to gain entrance and satisfy their unrelenting passions. End quote, quoting from Genesis 19, verse 11. Well, at verse 2, he said, again, you fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Interesting. There are uh, many carnal Christians that don't uh, even think to ask God for help in a given situation or ask Him to provide the things they need. Why? Because they're primarily self-sufficient. This is always a mark of immaturity and carnality, where we're still in the driver's seat, where we're still in control. I'll tell you what, guys, the whole Christian life uh, boils down to this in a nutshell. Learning to let go of your life, turn control over to God, and let him lead. And trust him for everything. Everything. The mark of carnality is always where a person wants to be in control still. And a lot of these folks, because they're so self-sufficient, you know, it just never occurs to them to ask God to help them in a given situation or provide a need that they have, I mean, they believe that whatever they need or probably want uh, can be provided through their own hard work and resourcefulness. And so consequently, once again, uh, it seldom, if ever, occurs to them to ask God for anything. However, listen, this often leads to a lot of struggles and warfare in their church, in their family, in their marriage, as they often have to lie and scheme and, you know, greatly pressure people to get what they want. You know, The more you are working in the flesh, the more you are trying to to satisfy your own needs and, and work things out in your own strength, it's exhausting, number one. It's not a work of the Spirit. When the Spirit of God is in control, things are just flowing. They're flowing. But when man is in control, there's a lot of laboring, there's a lot of exhaustion, there's a lot of anger because why can't people just get with my program? You know, I'm so wise, they should just trust me, you know, that kind of thing. And so you, it leads to a lot of turmoil, stress, and so on. Uh, creates a lot of pressure, anxiety for them internally. Yeah, externally with other people, but also creates a lot of anxiety and stress and pressure internally, and has led many to substance abuse because they're full, so full of anxiety and stress because they're trying to work everything out in their own strength that often they have to drink alcohol or take pills to quiet themselves, to kind of bring some kind of peace from all the turmoil inside. I like what one author said. He rightly pointed out, and I quote, uh, the evidences of internal conflict are legion in our society today. The proliferation of psychologists and psychiatrists, counselors and therapists of all sorts, clinics for the treatment of a host of emotional and psychological disorders, the increased problems of drug addiction, domestic violence and abuse, dreadful crimes, alcoholism, and of suicide give abundant evidence that personal disorders have reached a crisis point. The increase of impatience, frustration, anger, and hostility is not only seen in street crime, but vividly portrayed on modern highways, where drivers use obscene gestures, dangerous acts of intimidation, and sometimes even gunfire to vent their displeasure at what another driver does or fails to do, unquote. Well, you all heard about this horrific story, I think it was just before Christmas, where a grandmother was out driving shopping, and she had her three-year-old grandson in the back seat. And some guy was behind her, was not happy, that she was going so slow. So he takes his gun out and fires into the car, hits and kills his poor little kid. This is what we see going on today. And really, I I just think that the devil's got our society so wound so tight, people are snapping. People are snapping more than ever. People need the peace of God because the peace of this world, well, it's not peace at all. You medicate yourself or you reach for the alcohol or whatever it is, That only brings more problems down the road. So, you know, James is telling us that many don't have what they need because they never ask God for it. But then he goes on to say, but even when they do ask God, they often don't receive. Why? Verse 3, he said, you ask and do not receive because you ask what? Amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Look, God will provide his children's needs, and sometimes even their wants. You know, as long as those wants aren't ungodly or destructive. I've told you this before. I mean, God has promised to take care of our physical needs. That's true. Uh, But there have been times when I've asked God for things that he has not promised me. Uh, I've asked him to provide Christmas gifts for the kids when we had no money, Uh, when the kids were little. I've asked him to provide some money for us to take a nice vacation. He didn't promise me in his word that he would provide those things. But he's very gracious, isn't he? And I look back at all the times God provided money for us, not just to satisfy our needs, but even with things that we wanted to do, we didn't have the money to do because he's gracious. But listen, he will always give us what we need, but he will never give us things that will only feed our carnality and keep us immature. The physical body, as we said, has needs. God knows that. God made us. Uh, He has promised in his word to provide For and satisfy those needs, but he will never satisfy what the Bible calls the lust of the flesh. Now, in the Bible, in the New Testament, the word flesh sometimes means, is used of the physical body, which has legitimate needs, but it's most often used of our sinful, fallen nature. And while God has promised to provide for our flesh, our physical bodies, he has not promised us at any place, it would never do it, give us things that would satisfy our fleshly desires. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, and of course, you know this, these two verses. In some ways, I think Paul is contrasting the wisdom of God with the wisdom of this world manifest in the way we live our lives. But Paul said in Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against or wars against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh... And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. The flesh is our fallen nature there. And Paul is saying, look, there's a war going on inside of us for dominance. Our fallen nature wants to dominate as it always has before we became Christians. But now as Christians, we have a new nature, the nature of Christ. And the Spirit of God lives in us and wants us to yield to the Spirit, that we walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the evil desires of our flesh. And... Um, God will never satisfy or supply anything that will feed our flesh. Never, the flesh is what He wants to kill. I mean, the more flesh you have going on in your in your life, the more the the fallen nature dominates. The farther you're going to be from God. God wants us to get close to Him. All right, let's uh, begin to finish up here. Verse four, James four. I love James because he's not the kind of guy that will uh, tiptoe around the issues. You know, he doesn't speak in kind of soft flowery terms, you know, verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses, All right. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world, the world system, which is controlled by the devil, makes himself an enemy of God. Now, when James rebukes his readers, what he's doing really for carrying on a love affair with the world, that's idolatry. Instead of loving and remaining faithful to God, he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. Not physical adultery, but spiritual adultery, spiritual unfaithfulness. Now, when James uses that language, adulterers and adulteresses, he's Jewish, of course. He knows the Old Testament scriptures. And he's casting himself in the light of an Old Testament prophet, in a sense. Because he's talking to Jewish people primarily. And, of course, they knew their history. And they knew at different times in their history, the nation had walked away from God. And God used prophets to speak into their lives. And sometimes it was pretty harsh. Turn to Jeremiah 3. There are so many of these we could look at. I'm only going to give you three of them. I mean, the Old Testament is full of dozens and dozens of verses uh, along these lines. Jeremiah 3, verse 8. Now remember, all these prophets were speaking to a nation that had turned its back on God. That had begun to carry on love affairs with idols and And false gods and so on. When they were married, actually, to the Lord. In the Old Testament scriptures, he um, called himself Israel's husband because they entered into a covenant with him at Sinai, like a marriage covenant, where God promised fidelity and faithfulness to them, and they were to be faithful to God. He was to be exclusive, all right, uh, with them. They were to be exclusive with him. They weren't to have any other loves in their life okay but israel turned away from god jeremiah 3 verse 8 then i saw that for all the causes for which backsliding israel had committed adultery i had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce yet her treacherous sister judah did not fear but went and played the harlot also ezekiel 23 ezekiel 23 verse 37 god speaking through ezekiel says for they have committed adultery his people and blood is on their hands. They have committed adultery with their idols and even sacrificed their sons whom they bore to me, passing them through, uh, through the fire to devour them. Child sacrifice. God's people. Taking their little babies and sacrificing them to the god Molech. That was the god of, of material prosperity and so on. Sacrificing their children that they might be more physically prosperous. And I'll give you one more, Hosea 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. The raisin cakes were some of the things they offered to these pagan deities. So when James basically lays it on the line and says, Look, you are adulterers and adulteresses, he's saying you're unfaithful to God. And again, in the whole context of Christian maturity, is saying, look, guys, if you're going to be mature and walk in the Spirit, you've got to choose. I mean, who is your love? Well, I love the Lord and the world. You can't love both. Jesus said that, right? you got to choose. Joshua said that. Choose this day whom you're going to serve, the God of our fathers or the gods of this land. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So maturity, I think, right off the bat says, look... If you're going to be mature in, a, in the Christian life, you've got to decide in what world you're going to live. What kingdom? Okay? You can't have a, one foot in the kingdom of God, one foot in the kingdom of the world. You've got to decide which kingdom you're going to be a part of. And a lot of people need to, you know, to get into the world for a while if they think that that's where their happiness is so that the world can beat them up like the prodigal son because then they'll come back and they'll be ready to be fully committed to God. Sometimes God allows that too, you know? If your heart is not with me, you come to church, but you don't really love me. You're, love, you're loving the world. God says, go back to the world. Go indulge your flesh and see if the world has what you really want and need. And when the world beats you up enough, then you come back and realize how good you have it in the father's house, like the prodigal found out, right? But as James saw it, they were walking in covetousness. And in Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul says, covetousness is idolatry. Again, lusting after the things of this world instead of the things of God. And um, he called it friendship with the world. And as John said in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 15, don't love the world or the things in the world. For if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. This world is passing away. Don't get tangled up in this world. Be full on for God, totally committed to him. And we'll end with verses 5 and 6, although we won't really talk about them too much. We'll save this for next time. But he goes on to say in verses 5 and 6, Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we'll look at what all of that means a little more deeply next time as we continue our study. So may God just continue to... Show us, look. I think, I think maturity is something that as Christians, especially as we have entered into a new year, I think it's something that's on all of our minds. How can I grow more in my walk with the Lord? How can I love Him more? How can I be more sold out for Him? I don't want to. I'm tired of kind of playing games and living between the world and the kingdom. I want to. I want to choose the Lord fully. Well, it starts with your mind. Okay, making that conscious decision. And then, of course, after you decide, look, I want to go all out for the Lord, then it means getting into the Word, praying for God's grace to apply that into your life that you can start walking in wisdom every single day. And uh, that's a sign of maturity. So uh, let's pray, and we'll continue on next time, God willing. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your Word. And, Father, we know that James is wanting all of us to grow And he's kind of doing it by having us stand next to what maturity looks like. As we then look at what maturity looks like in the Christian life and then look at our lives, most of us can see we have a long way to go. We have a long way to grow. Give us grace, Lord, in these last days as the devil is pulling out all the stops, uh, the temptation has been ramped up, um, the worldliness, the carnality, all designed to drag us away from you. Give us grace to walk closely with you. And the Lord, to have us insatiable hunger for your word. And as we read it, give us grace to understand it, to hide it in our hearts, and by your grace to live it out in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your incredible grace. And we ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.